Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Tree Actions, the Human Forestry Podcast. And uh, joining Tony and I today, all the way from Central North British Columbia, is a longtime instructor and colleague, Kyle Larden. Hey, Kyle, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on. Looking forward. No problem, man. Thanks for coming out. It's been good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the uh, your uh, your your. I know a bit of your story, and I know it's rich in history and and uh, in the trees. The trees have been part of your life for a while, but uh, we always ask people as a way to kind of get things flowing how they would describe their journey in the in the human forest, where and how it all kind of began. You know, for some, it's it goes right back to climbing trees as a kid. For some, it's a little bit. You know, they 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 ended up helping out at a tree company and for some it's completely different so um maybe you could just uh kick it off by telling us how you feel your recollection of how your journey in the human forest began where did it all start for you uh i guess for me i I always like anybody that is involved with trees like being outside like being uh in the trees always as kids we grew up in a rural 10 acre parcel I guess my cousins lived right across the road another 10 acre parcel and we always were outside building forts you know with sticks and lean-tos and that kind of stuff um but as a kid you don't realize that that's a big part of you and then um fast forward getting out of high school had a family friend ask me to go and run a chainsaw and and uh basically buck logs in the logging industry uh, to fit on the logging trucks and anybody that's been in courses with me knows during my um my earn the right that i have uh, i go through this story about my journey going from bucking to then working for a former hockey coach of ours and family friend and he started me hand falling in the business that was like 95 1995 1996 and then um started my own contract falling company um, in 97 and did that pretty much exclusively for the next 15 ish years or, or so, um, maybe not even quite that, maybe 12 years or something, just falling, standing camps, doing that kind of thing. And then, uh, as the journey progressed, I went to, uh, um, went to our can courses. I, I started climbing trees, of course, went online and, and, uh, bought a saddle and watched some YouTube videos to learn how to climb trees and, and uh, a former um, and still a, a colleague, a falling partner of mine who started climbing before me said that I needed to take some uh, courses if I wanted to have any um, success and longevity in the climbing industry. So that's where I was introduced to Arbcan and uh, met Dwayne subsequently through hand falling or the technical tree falling and hazard danger tree courses. And that kind of started my journey into the training side of it. But, um. Yeah. You know, I remember the, uh, you know, you were quite, uh, I don't know what the word is, you know, committed to, you know, you know what, I, it was the first time that we had someone interested in taking our courses that was really fully fledged from what I would consider the logging forestry background as far as, you know, you were, you were a full-time active you know, faller, and uh, wasn't it our incentive program or something to 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 train, like to get out of the like logging, retrain or something? Yeah, there was a there was a program in BC. I, I don't even remember um, the title, but it was uh, like the business development bank or something like that had uh, a five thousand dollar incentive to retrain out of the forest industry, and so I. Um, put that money towards Arb Can training, which was, you know, <laughs> a, a real huge step going from falling trees on the ground to climbing trees. But still, it was it was uh, a different avenue or a different basket. And so, uh, yeah, I basically talked through conversation with Nancy um, in the office and uh, went through the process of getting Arb Can signed up as a a facilitator or as a trainer recognized in BC through this program, which subsequently I think a few other guys did after that, because it had to be 
a school or um, training that was in BC, which Arbican's office is Great. in Alberta. So we went through that process. I find it interesting that they, uh, you know, would consider, you know, the, the arborist industry separate from forestry, you know, cause there, I mean, there's so many similarities yet, yet it is quite different, you know? So, you know, it, it, it you know, it isn't that far of a leap from, from the, well, I don't know. It's, you know, what do you feel like, you know, you having really had a career in both, like, what, what, how would you describe the, the similarities and the differences between, you know, the, the forestry work you did and now the urban forestry work you kind of do? Oh, well, the, both the similarities and the differences are so small, but so huge that I, I don't know where to start or where to end it. Um, very much you're using chainsaws and you're working with trees, but the the limited tools you have coming from a forestry background you know meaning only a basically a wedge pouch and an, and an axe to pound wedges um coming to the arboriculture side of things and and having the ability to set ropes from the ground and and just the vast array of tools really opens up another world as far as uh having control of your trees and and uh and actual precision falling and in when there's high consequences, when there's power lines and houses and yards and fences and shops involved. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's a really tough question to, to answer in a one hour segment. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's, uh, there isn't a lot of people. Would you say that have made the transition? Uh, I, I think there is. Um, well, I, I guess it's a small world, so I know a lot of them. Um, but th there's there's definitely a few and, and some really, really good um, guys and gals who who have made the transition, I guess. And, and the transition isn't huge, but it's like any industry. It just depends how much you want to learn and how far do you want to take it. Do you want to? keep using a hammer um, to build cupboards or do you want to use some more um, intricate tools and tools that are going to help you do a finer job? Yeah, I think, I think, I know I see it too, like more and more I see people coming into forestry or coming into arboriculture from forestry, but then I also kind of see it the other way too, people from, you know, going from forestry into more of a cutting scenario and and you're right. I always kind of describe it to kind of like cousins, right? Like they're similar, but from the same family tree, but that just the way you go about things is very different. And I think the problems come in is when you go from one to the other and you only take the tool set from one to the next one, right? So if you're a, if you're a feller and you go into tree work and all you add is a rope and a harness, um, it's not going to go well for you, you know, whereas, you know, if you're a tree guy and you go into logging and you're bringing you know, 70 different ways to get a tree down, you're probably going to be the slowest cutter that ever existed. Um, just, you know, there's, there's certain circumstances and risk, you know, like it, I always tell people in the arborist world, if your cut goes three foot off, you might land it in the middle of a $7 million house in the woods. If your cut goes three foot off, provided you're not underneath it, you probably have a good story and, and you have to pay the skitter operator a little bit more. And, uh, you know, uh, but you know, because so you can pull it out. So circumstances and stuff are different. But I do see that I do see that crossover a little bit. I just where it gets people get confused is they assume the tool that works in one, whether it be a felling cut, a full wrap chainsaw bar, uh, whatever. To well, if it works well in one, it's automatically got to work well in the other. It's like no, no, not really. You know, like it can, but not really. Well, it brings up a really good point, you know, because, because, and I, you know, it's along these lines of differences and similarities. And I think both industries are plagued with uh, tradition and historical ways of doing things, uh, habits, you know, and, you know, the notching, we haven't gotten into this at all yet with anyone on the podcast, but, you know, you know, the, the dogma around specific type of notching and what notch works the best and so on and so forth. You know, certainly the Humboldt is one that always comes up and is, you know, kind of, uh, 
you know, very, very associated with forestry or logging. And then you have, you know, and then, and of course all that has bled into urban forestry as well, but, but there you have the introduction of more open notches for the concept of control, but even that gets disputed. I'm curious, Kyle, how do you navigate that? You know, when you teach, you know, having, and, and, you know, I guess maybe a little more personally or just your thoughts on when you first were exposed to it, you know, coming from, I don't imagine you were exposed to, I don't even know if we've talked about this specifically, but, you know, what, how much of a revelation was it and how hard was it or was it easy for you to transition and say, okay, I get it, the open notch makes sense. Or, you know, how, what are your thoughts on that whole uh, <laughs> topic as it exists within the two industries? Opposed to uh, what we're talking about is an open face conventional, which is a conventional notch, but it's opened up 70 to 90 degrees. Um, and I say it like everybody should know it, but not everyone does. So it, it, you have to think about it and then it's odd when you first see it. Anyways, I was exposed to it, Dwayne, when I took the course in Calgary with you, um, in 2010, I believe. And so I had spent, yeah, 13 years, I guess, or 14, 15 ish years strictly on humble. And, uh, and that was you drilled into me that that's the only way to fall trees. There is this other notch, just the conventional, but it has all these downsides and you have, has, you know, you have to raise the back cut significantly more and all this. But the thing that I lacked was the scientific knowledge on what happens with the tree with, um, stump shot back pressure on the stump as far as when the tree's going through the arc of its fall um you know where the force is applied and and basically the why behind you know what controls a tree and and what goes on and so when i was first exposed to it my mind how it works is i i I really like to have the why the concepts behind what's happening with the tree and the hinge and the stump and so when that's fully explained to me it was easy to accept because it just made sense. It was, it was. Yeah. And it's a tough one, isn't it? To explain that because the science of it is so variable, you know, in, in the fact that, you know, wood, how green the wood is, you know, how, even how deep the notch is will change that reaction, you know? And uh, there's, there's, there's always going to be that element of art and science blend. That's pretty I think going to be pretty evident in felling alone, let alone the other aspects of arboriculture. Or, or um, so, did you feel you found that you you gained enough of that to, or was it one of those things you definitely had to try it for yourself? I know when I first took it, when I first learned it, so I was, I was a very conventional notch cutter and and a humble to some degree. I I, I seem to reserve the humble that was something I did more with tops for some reason. It was just the way I was taught is what it was. And when I first learned from Tim, the the open notch from Tim Ard, I was really had a hard time with it. I really, really struggled. Did you did you find that or did you find that you were able to adopt it more or did it take you a bit? No, I I mean I can't remember the specifics of it. And I was still mostly a production, you know, logging hand faller. Um but as soon as I had the concepts in my head and when I practiced it even in the class it was so easy to cut um it was so easy to get a nice clean notch and have your cuts line up every time that it was it was very easy for me to accept and to then employ into my regular daily practice and and it's my absolute default now you know combine that with a with a um a board back cut um and having a strap for your for your um yeah that, that i guess that's people. another whole thing that you know I, I don't think those techniques are absent from the forestry world they just seem to be the you got to be it's a real specialized exception in in logging versus kind of more the default that we find in the way you know i guess what we kind of lean towards in the way we've taught our programming um but, but was that was that a very new thing for you too then i can't remember no i had learned that when i was um actually uh, actually working um, 
in the interior rainforest and it was in a camp um, on the north arm of Cornell Lake. So it was very remote, either boat or fly in. And one of the fathers out there, um, and he, he was one of my mentors at the time. Uh, well, two of them, Ted Simmons and uh, Trent. Um, geez, I can't even think of his last name. Totemako was his business. Anyway, I'll, he, he had a big part in, in uh, mentoring me in, in like large cedar, like we're talking nine, 10 foot diameter cedar, but they're totally hollow. They might have a four inch shell. So I learned out there to leave that back strap um, just so that you can finish your, your back cut and get your hinge thin enough on either side of the tree because you had to work the tree from both sides, really. You didn't really have a choice. And, and it was steep terrain. And uh, so, yeah, I, I learned leaving the backstrap there so that you could just release the backstrap and, you know, your hinge and everything was already set up and you could just step away um, to your safety area. That's awesome. So I'm, on trees of that hollowness, you would find, I was, I've never had an opportunity to fell a nine foot hollow cedar would like uh, I guess there's enough shell there that you didn't have to worry about collapsing or did you ever get that like where it was where you know I've I've, I've had trees hollow where when I bore it they'll collapse because there's not enough support but they're poplars and stuff eh yeah did you was there a way did you ever experience it or did you combat it somehow um no the the cedars are are like as a cylinder are very strong like you the if we had to leave one standing machines had a tough time they had to rip them apart to get them down but they were very structurally sound and and you know cedar was wow. designed to be hollow you know dead tops and and uh hollow centers and so we were used to working with just shells and not a, i mean there there you it was always in the back of your mind but it wasn't something that you kind of Right, you were running from everything. What about uh, wedging? What about wedging? How did you guys get around that, or did you just choose to fall always with the lean? Uh, yeah, it was mostly we'd fall downhill. Sometimes it was against the lean, but um, yeah, you, you could wedge a tree as a not as a normal tree. You always had your, um, you know, added uh, discretion and and added spidey senses, I guess. But you treated it as as best you could you, you couldn't go against too much back lean there's just too much weight there to overcome a significant back lean but right, you, right. on a nine foot tree or even eight foot tree four foot tree you have a large lever arm where your wedge is that provides you quite a bit of lift yeah yeah and i think is it you know relative you know the lean is in in the in the forest because of the proximity of the trees are it, it's never quite as extreme often as you'll find in the in the in the you know trees growing more singularly or more open you get a lot more variables or or the severity of lean increases when you get into the urban forest i would i would say yeah for sure they're they're definitely you're in a you're in a forest stand so the trees are you know they have a general lean and you start your falling process going with the lean taking into account the the majority of the trees so for the most part you you're falling with the lean then you have the odd one that was you know maybe another tree pushed it over and so it has some kind of you know skewer lean that you have to deal with but that that's an individual um case and you, you treat it as such you get that on the ground and make it safe and then carry on with your normal lay of your wood i guess you know, we're we're in a pretty interesting topic. I I, I find it's probably one of the most controversial topics. Uh, not hollow trees and that, but 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 notching and back cutting, wedging. You know, the depth you're not, the openness of your notch. It's it's still so uh, like you you post a picture on social and man, if it depending on how you've done it, you know, even the, the where we cut, where we teach to cut the notch, like not right down on the ground, like. Um, how do you, uh, you know, what would you have to say to people or how do you deal with the, the, um, how do I put it? You know, we, where people are just, they're just unable to see, or even for a minute think that there might be alternatives and why, you know, uh, how do you, uh, how do you handle that when you experience that with people? What's your comments on that? Well, 
I, I guess in, in courses, mostly I get asked a lot, like what notch do you use the most and, and do you like the humble or would you rather do the open face? And my answer to all of those questions is yes. And, and it's just a broad way to say they're, they're just simply different tools for different applications. And if I'm in a certain application, then this tool is better and in other applications then this tool is better and it just it depends 100 percent on what the, i want the tree to do um both through the arc of its fall and then when it's hitting the ground do i want to attempt to land it flat or do i want the hinge to hold on to the stump um and so it's just application and then the tool that is best suited for that application yeah, I, 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 I very similarly ask, answer or try to respond the same way, you know, and obviously on social, you, you, you don't get usually that opportunity because it, people just kind of blurt out a comment, you know, and uh, you, you can't really effectively often respond to it properly. But but uh, but it is fascinating to me. Do you, do you think there's any kind of a trend in that shifting or is it the same as it's always been like? In my experience, like it seems like it still crops up as much as it ever did. And, you know, we've been training what we teach. And it's not that we don't, you know, in our courses, we don't specifically teach some of the more conventional notches just because they're already taught elsewhere. People usually come with that knowledge. So we focus on what we consider the new knowledge. But would you say that's still ex the way it is today or is there been a shift in that? Um, there. I think there's less people that come in with previous knowledge than have kind of a clean slate, which the clean slate is nice. Um, but it's also, I guess, nice to have the previous knowledge and make everything applicable. Like if, if there's uh, someone that comes in with a forestry background or, you know, forestry might include coming from the wildfires, which we have a lot of, uh, of guys coming from the wildfire and they have their own training program in bc and and they mostly stick to the humboldt and the basically the curriculum of the um forestry related falling and it's all great but at least it's they have some application and it's a, there are times when it does work and there's low consequences for you know missing um your direction by you know two or three degrees um and and then that's yeah really i mean tony cool. tony made that sorry tony made that comment about that like do you do you concur with that like, is it is it a fair statement that the consequences are more severe than than you know certainly to collateral damage in the urban forest than they are than than in the, the forestry realm like you're you can get away with making mistakes more easily was that a fair statement do you think oh 100 percent um it's the, the consequences when you're in a forestry setting are are relatively low and, and I'm, I don't mean we're talking like personal injury I mean the the consequence of having your tree miss your intended direction of fall by two or three degrees and and when you're in you know a, a tall stand of trees like we're talking 120 130 feet if you miss your your uh, direction by two or three degrees you might be like four or five feet off in the forest setting it means you're brushing another tree knocking limbs off it which you know you you want to avoid doing but you're going to fall those trees anyway so it's not a high consequence where in a in an urban setting if you're falling a tree that tall and you miss by a few degrees you could be taken out of the shop or the house and so there it, it is very high consequence you don't have room for any air where in the forest setting you're you can play with it and you can oh yeah i missed by a bit not the end of the world you go and you make your bucking cuts and you move to the next tree so i like to say that the humboldt is you know even 95 percent successful which is really good um, but in an urban setting that means one in 20 homeowners i have to go and explain well sorry about your fence but the humble works 25 percent of the time you're just in the five percent that's that's one in 20 customers that's it yeah, that's, a, that's a great way to put it i'm stealing that thanks 
<laughs> well, you know, and, and I think too, and, and Dwayne's right, like the felling and felling techniques are some of the hotly debated, but usually the most the most heated arguments are not about principles, they're always about methods, right? The principle of tree felling is pretty straightforward. Face cut, back cut, forms a hinge, controlled fall principles, right? But there's a thousand different ways to get to there, and that's what people, and it's the old saying, and I can't remember, um, German guy, you know, if, if you only know methods, you'll always be limited. But if you understand the principles, then you can choose methods, right? And I think that with felling, and I even see this coming into climbing too, but you know, it's more prevalent with felling. It's just like when people will argue with you, it's because they only understand method. And when they're really, really argue with you and won't leave that method, it's because they haven't mastered the tool, right? They haven't mastered the chainsaw as a tool. So they don't understand the possibilities of like, you know, it's the classic someone, well, you can't bore cut here. That's not safe. Well, that's because you don't know how to do it. <laughs> that's, you know, like it, you don't like, oh, that bore cutting the saw chatters around. And I'm like, ah, yeah, I get, you know, so when somebody's really stuck on a method, it's because they haven't mastered the tool. All right. Once it, you know, and that's like a lot of people come out and it's we do it with basic filing courses. The three, three of us have done it. And somebody might have a, a good set of a good set of knowledge or whatever, but they want to go, they want to run before they walk. Right. So when you're training a new fella, it's like, trust me, just do it this way. Let's, you know, let's, you know, once you master the tool, then we can start talking about Humboldt's. Then we can start talking about all the other things that we can do, um, that you can do to manipulate the fall of a tree, but you know, you haven't even mastered the tool. You don't even know how to use your chainsaw well yet. Like get that down. And I think that applies over to climbing you know, very well too, not trying to change subjects, but I see the same thing. Guys, girls come in, they want, they have all, they want to do all this cool stuff climbing, but it's like, you've got to master the, the, the principles of it. And then you got to understand the tools that you're going to use. And then you can start looking at the very. You know, it's uh, I was just sitting here thinking, uh, I know there was recently, was it last week? There's the fatality with wildland firefighter in, in British Columbia call. Yeah. Un unfortunately, it's so sad that there's been one in BC, then the Northwest Ter Territories, and then Alberta in wildland fire. I have friends in fire, and they they have posts, and it's there. It doesn't seem like there's been any in Canada in years, and then all of a sudden we get hit. I, I don't know if it's bad things happen in threes. I mean, hopefully that's that's the last of it, but it's it's super. It's sad. Yeah, you know, and, you know, that, yeah, I mean, of course, number one, you know, our, our utmost sympathies and respect to, well, condolences, I don't know, what do you, you know, there's no, it, it's a really weird situation, I find, because, you know, often we get asked to train or to go train after these incidents in, in, in even associations like wildfire groups and you know, it's a real sensitive topic, but, you know, I, and I don't know any of the details of the incidents, but you almost can almost predict what, you know, the, the certainly the proximity, you know, you almost always it's the, the proximity to the stump, you know, the proximity to where you're making the cut is almost always right there. There is it not emphasized enough Kyle, or is it just, you know, cause we make such a big deal of it and that's why, but what are your thoughts on that whole thing? And, and then how do you speak of it with the respecting the fact that someone's, you know, sac like, you know, not to, I don't know how to put it. You know what I mean? I think. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even sure that these incidents, I have no idea what the incidents were in the other provinces and territories, but I don't believe it was chainsaw related in BC. It was just a worker was hit oh, by a tree, not, not running chainsaw. Um, from from my understanding, oh. or, or what you hear for the through the grapevine, it was just uh, basically a burnt out tree that fell. Like there was there was no, I, from what I've heard, there's no falling or anything involved. Just in the area working on um, working in the black in the burned area and uh, and a tree. Yeah. Well, it's never fun or good, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's funny how the tone changes. Comments about techniques and so on can change quite a bit when when you're when you're faced with the, those types of consequences of a fatality. Um, and, uh, you know, or I don't want to 
you know, talk out of school or say anything without having any details. And even if we did, it's just not, there's, it's good to learn from them. I think that's the best thing. If there's some way that there can be to learn from what did happen so people can prevent it in the future. And hopefully we might see something like that, but, um, you know, I just wanted to, it just popped into my head and we always try to acknowledge it doesn't matter who it is. And I mean, there's been several arborists killed this year as well. So, uh, it's, it's, I hate to say it seems to be a fact of it, Kyle, like what, you know, we haven't really talked about this one either, but what, what are your thoughts on that whole thing? As far as like, is it something that it's just always going to be there because the industry is the way it is, or is it, is, is the road to zero something? That's Man, you'd like to think that it would be attainable. But there, there's a certain amount of, I guess, inherent risk when you deal with trees. I mean, there's been people killed on a golf course driving a golf cart that were golfing and a tree you know, gets blown down on them. Um, I think, I can't even remember if it was the Masters this year and trees blew down while the golf, while the tournament was going on. And there's, it just happened that it was somebody, uh, a golfer, golfing group that didn't draw a big crowd. They said if it was a really popular golfer that had a big crowd, there would have been people under those trees. Um, so you're dealing with nature and trees. There's, there's always going to be um, the X factor, I guess. And you just, you, you, as long as you do the steps in your falling plan or when you're running chainsaw, then, then you're, you're in the 90 percentile, right? The, the five fifteen ninety. you want to put yourself in the 90. You don't want to default to the 10% that, you know, potentially could get hurt because those are the 10 that are going to. Yeah. It, and, you know, you bring up an interesting thing, Dwayne, there's always, everyone says, you know, zero injuries, zero fatalities, whether it be in logging or, arboriculture i think we need to rephrase it i look forward to a year where we have zero fatalities or injuries because of a direct violation of best industry practice and good sense right because you're going to have the wildfire worker that's doing the right thing the right way and something tragic happens i mean if you've been in this industry long enough you've done it right and something's gone wrong now if you do it right often enough and well enough typically the consequences of that going wrong are less but still i look forward for me zero that road to zero means I look forward to, and I think it's possible that nobody is hurt or killed in the forestry industry or the arboriculture industry through it by committing a direct violation of best industry practice and just good judgment. You know, if we could get that year, I think that's possible. Is it possible to have absolutely nobody die? I don't, I don't know if that is because there's so many factors that roll into it because we don't work with impunity because you could be doing the right thing the right way. And something could still go wrong. I mean, that's 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 the tragicness of it all. I think. But if we could just get people to follow industry practice, make good decisions, then I think we'd be on that road to zero. Yeah, they, they you know if we could cure. There's been someone said that something about curing ignorance and apathy would go a long way in curing a lot of problems. You know, uh, and then and then just you know blatant ignorance and then just ignorance you know just not knowing innocently and then choosing not to know out of belligerence you know uh that's if there was a way to to, to curb that it would be but yeah i agree the inherent nature of what we do there's just elements of risk that are that are there that you know could result in things happening but you know we were talking about our good friend james who celebration of life was last weekend and uh the weekend before last i guess but um you know like even what happened to him that was very random and you know i couldn't you know that they, they like the incident that occurred is fall on the bike you know what that could happen to anybody you know and he, he wasn't ill prepared he wasn't you know and and it was just a bad fall I slept on a on a loop you know, from my understanding, Kyle, it's like it was, you know, there wasn't, uh, he didn't do anything wrong to deserve that or to, you know, he wasn't negligent. Let's put it that way. Right. No, he wasn't, he wasn't young and foolish by any means. He's riding his mountain bike and having fun. And anybody that rides mountain bikes, um, you, you 
have crashes all the time. And if you don't have a crash, uh, then you know one's coming. And usually then you have a crash and you tumble, you go over the bars or something, and then you get up and it's like, okay, carry on. Now I'm good for a while. And, and it's just super random, right? You know, speaking of James, I was, uh, I, you know, he was always, I always learned a lot from James and, you know, James is an interesting one because, you know, he, he embodies a lot of, uh, the tree actions whole concept in the human forest because he was more than just an arborist, right? He was, he, he had endured life lessons that created change. You know, his woundwood was strong. Let's put it that way. And, uh, you know, he, and he had a way of conveying that. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I, I really, you know, the more I've pondered his decision, you know, it, 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 uh, it was probably one of the strongest, most powerful lessons I ever learned was how to, you know, respect yourself or to, uh, to make the transition. It was a really, it, you know, it, it challenged me on many levels and, in the end, it would just my respect and admiration for him grew out of the whole the whole thing. Um, but but you know he he you know he he was like a he's like a symbol in the human forest of great dignity and strength. You know, a tree whose legacy you know his remnants in the human forest will be felt for years to come. And uh, you know. Yeah. How we integrate into this stand of people that we surround ourselves with is, uh, is a powerful thing. But uh, And I know that he had an influence on you. So, uh, um, you know, how do you, we, we always make a bit of a transition to, you know, where we've been talking technique and, and cutting, but, but how has just being in trees and involved with trees, how would you say it's affected you not just professionally, like we've been talking, but personally as a person, as a through your friends and relationships, has you do you ever draw a correlation from spending time in the trees to your own self? Oh, absolutely. I I actually um, it just made me think of it. I did a Instagram post, I don't know, a couple of years ago now. DJ uh, and Tiger, one of them, they were both in on it, but it was either like. 40 push-ups for 40 days or something like that, or do a post. And so I did a post about trees and, and how I really feel that people are very similar to tree, trees and that we don't, we don't ever heal from what has affected us. We just seal. And it's always, you know, it's always going to be there inside and we just kind of put some wound wood around it and, and either cover it up, don't talk about it or, you know, however we deal with it personally, but, um, it's, it's so similar and, and it's how people are and, and how they compartmentalize our wounds internally, wall them off, block them off, carry on. Yeah. I, I, I think the woundwood analogy is so powerful because, you know, in trees, woundwood is actually stronger than the original wood, you know, and it doesn't have to, hide the wood not always it doesn't always seal it right up but it but it and it'll could produce wound wood until the tree is strong enough that it doesn't sense that as a defect anymore like what an amazing analogy like if we endure it and we 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 cover or we build but it makes us strong as we were before the injury or even and that wood there is stronger you know that concept i find very beautiful for you know as far as not that we look for ways to get hurt, but sometimes those hurts can actually—they they help form and shape us, you know, like trees. Oh, absolutely. And and then further to that, how trees—I mean, some of my my closest friends now and and are are the treeple, the people that hang out in trees. And and James was a huge part of that. And even going to his celebration life and meeting up with the the people that were down there um, and getting to reconnect with them. I hadn't seen most of them since probably the PNW um, climbing 
the chapter championships that were in Stanley Park in 2019. I, I hadn't seen most of them since then. Um, I've seen a few, like Emerald was there, and and uh, I'd seen her at some of the the Nats uh, Arbcan um, events, which was great and good to reconnect with her and and uh, and a bunch of just the the PNW folk that were there. It was it was just great to see them and and uh, and really you know fills your heart. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I would have, uh, I really, it would have been a real cool time. Um, how many people do you think were in attendance? It was a pretty big group. Uh, I imagine I would shoot. I don't, I don't know. I would guess over just around a hundred, maybe over a hundred that, that were at the, at the actual, um, inside there, there was this little, um, barn or a building open-ended building where everyone gathered on uh saturday afternoon it was just there was it was absolutely not formal it was just open mic and everyone told stories and i would say there's probably that many people in there but the the whole event was friday saturday and sunday and there was people there friday that didn't stay for saturday and there's people that came after after the the main gathering on Saturday or people that were there Saturday morning and left and people, you know, so there's people hanging out the whole weekend and, and just being able to connect with those people and, you know, spend a couple nights camping down there and, and, uh, you know, just really feeling the James vibe. We were out on paddle boards on the lake and, you know, just sitting and chilling out and chatting and talking about life and, how James's influence on our life, you know, you always kind of take a step back and when you're having a problem or trying to deal with difficult people, it's like, okay, how would James handle this? And you always kind of look, look to that, um, to that, uh, his presence to help. Yeah, we would have definitely had him as a guest, you know, it's, uh, it wouldn't, there's no question we would have invited him and asked him for sure. Um, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, what would, uh, what's your, you know, one you're willing to share a memory or a learning or a lesson that, that, that you directly link to James. Is there one you could share with us? I guess two, one is one of the main ones was he took me on my first big tree climb. Um, after a Vermeer seminar that he was, he was, uh, hosting, I guess, um, we went down, I, I went across the border and stayed, uh, with him and Beth at their house. And, uh, actually Katie Bigelow came up and she stayed at his house too. And then we all went out with, there was a couple more people and I can't even remember who it was. I think it was, we narrowed it down or we, uh, figured out it was 2013 when we did the climb and, uh, in Washington and uh, just his whole process about introducing yourself to the tree and, and touching the tree, um, you know, just making good with the fact that you're going to climb, you weren't going to do any, weren't doing any removal, not even, you know, you leave all the dead wood, you don't do anything, but just, you know, have a relationship with the tree and uh, it's a living being. And then, without being too spiritual, just, you know, introducing yourself and getting to know the tree and, and say, Hey, we're going to have fun together today. So that was one. the other one was what, what's the point of a conversation? Like what, what are you trying to get out of the conversation? What's the goal of it, of any conversation or any interaction with someone is, is, you know, not to overthink it, but if it's a discussion or a heated discussion, it's like, okay, why, why do I feel so emotional about this conversation and, and what do I want to get out of it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, that's a, like I was saying, you know, he, he, it, there was more than just it, always with James. It, it, there was more than just tree talk. There was always tree talk, but there was, there was always uh, a personal side, a, even a, a somewhat spiritual side. There was more than just, business you know it it always crossed over at least it did for he and i and i think it did with anyone that got to know him right and it could happen very quickly you know i remember 
uh, he asked me to reach out to some of the Parks Canada people that he only met once. And, you know, of course, we did a trainer together with them so that, you know, you get to know people pretty good, but he formed a strong bond with them very quickly. And he had that way with people, you know. And uh, it was always a, always a always an intention, it seemed like. He was focused on, uh, uh, yeah. It wasn't, there wasn't idleness, you know, or wastefulness. It was intent. There was always an intention. Well, it's, uh, it's been a good chat. We, uh, um, you know, while we were talking about notches, I, I, I just wanted to just, just go back to that a little bit because we're um, the from taking tops out of trees. That's the one area where I find it's still, uh, you know, it's, it's not really policed. It's not governed. There's no regs on cutting a notch in the top of a tree to take a top out because they, they, you just don't, there's nothing on it. Like, it's not like, you know, you, you'll find various standards on felling trees, cutting notches in the base of trees. But cutting notches in the tops of trees, and you you know out there especially you know when my experience when I first started cutting tops out of trees in the west coast, it's like this is a damn sized tree that I'd fell from the ground and I'm felling it at 80, 90 feet or hundred feet or whatever even higher. So, and and the controversy that exists up there, like as far as notching and type and hinge and opening and is even even more vast. It seems like. Um, you know, having the, you know, I don't know a lot of people Kyle, personally that I don't really know, maybe a couple, but no one, uh, I don't know anyone as well as I know you that has the depth of experience in both realms from felling on the ground, all size and manner of trees from the forest as a hand faller into the urban forest as a technical faller or falling trees in the, where the consequences are greater. And then in addition to that, You've not only done that, you've taken it into the aerial position. So I think you're in a very unique position to to share some unique pers unique perspectives on that, not only from having done it, but having the depth of experience from having done it on the ground in the beginning to where you are now. So, I, you know, no specific question, just your that whole topic of what notch and how to cut up there, you know, what what do you uh, i'm curious what you'd have to say about all that <laughs> and it, it goes back to the application of what you want um long story short it goes it goes right back to james i can remember sitting having dinner with them and having this exact conversation and we had chopsticks and we had to ask for a steak knife um from the waitress and and we were having sushi and some sort of bowl, a poke bowl or something. And, and she didn't know why we needed a steak knife, but we were sawing on chopsticks and like having the action of, of a tree or a top falling and what happens to the stem. And then we were talking about the, the opening of the notch and whether you want it in a Humboldt or a, or a conventional type notch and going through that whole process. And um, yeah, there's, it, depending on what you want the top to do. I guess is, is what kind of notch I would say right now, my default is a humble and it's open about 50 degrees. Um, and that's to achieve a flat landing top. Is that, uh, is that the, a the flat reason? landing, but also um, with a humble there's because the butt of the tree or butt of the top is in front of the stem or the stump there's no chance of stump shot so you're eliminating yeah. that um the 50 degree opening because i want it more than 45 where there's maximum pushback on my stem we're already we're already coming back to neutral um but not more than 70 degrees because the hinge wood holds on too long like even past the 70 degrees if that's your notch opening and then when the hinge does break the the top that you're tied to and and your is your life support is actually starting to bend forward and the hinge breaks and it's a really violent shake and so it's like it's like getting all those pieces of the of the puzzle 
and um, and trying to make the least amount of movement on the top that I'm tied to and and having uh, not the top that I'm tied to, but the stem that I'm tied to also having a top land flat, also having it, you know, potentially not too far from the base of the tree. Like I don't create, I don't want to create a whole bunch of space if it's, if I'm in a confined area or a yard, um, uh, just a whole bunch of factors go into it. Um, it, 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 you know, and that's the, it, it's such a, educated answer and experienced answer you know you got the training and the education in there and that's that's the you know where tony was talking about i think is getting people to think about like how significant the reactive force of the top pushing and how you can minimize or accentuate that or exacerbate it based on your notch opening like just to have that knowledge that that you actually can control that and it's not just well this is the notch i always cut i cut it the same every time well you know, that, that's, I always found that one of the, the most, I would always try very hard to impart that, that um, discernment or the, the emphasize the significance of that. And uh, you, you explained it very well there. And, uh, and absolutely. The other thing is, is, and Shiga would talk a lot about this as well is, you know, variety or, you know, thinking everything through. Because it keeps like thinking creates stimulus, right? And 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 lack of boredom. And when you when you when you do things so much the same, and I think Kyle, you've talked about this before, the repetitive complacency thing. You know, the more details you put into a plan, even if it's for the sake of keeping your brain working, it helps minimize that repetitiveness. You know. And you mentioned you don't cut out you cut a fifty degree. I can just hear people listening going, What? Fifty degree? You know, but, but you're, I know for a fact, because I know you that you're actually like, it's not 45 and it's not 60, you know, you're cutting a 50 degree and, and that a lot of people wouldn't understand that concept or even have the, the, they wouldn't, wouldn't explain it to that detail because they just don't have the understanding of it. Right. The knowledge of it. So, um, I hope that that gets people to think about it. Cause that's, it's really eloquent. I think, thank you for that answer. Tony, you were, I think you were going to say something. I may have talked no. over you. I was just going to clean your question up, Dwayne, but I think uh, I think Kyle already answered it. Well, the way I would have asked your question, Dwayne, if I were you, I would have said, "What are the what are the considerations of aerial tree felling or throwing a top that you, that you have in the air that you don't have on the ground?" All right, because they are similar. I mean, you could use the exact same technique, but you'll get very different results. And I think you covered that. Like how how far do you want that piece to travel before the hinge separates? When you know when that hinge separates, what's going to happen? You know, I used to always think that you know when you're felling on the ground. You know, you don't think about the forces that get reflected from the tree going over into the ground until one day I was literally on the edge of a cliff tied in, felling trees down. And as the tree went over, I'm standing on the ground, but I'm tied in, right? Because as it went over, you could feel the root plate and everything shift and just move and reflect that energy off. And it's the very same thing that happens in the tree, but you very rarely feel that on the ground, you know, like when things are firmly rooted. So no, I think you answered it. What are those extra considerations? Right. And I know that, you know, I think you could have, we could have a long detailed conversation on whether notch opening changes, whether it lands flat or not, but that's a whole nother, you know, I think it has more to do with the amount of foliage, but uh, that's another thing too. Depending on where your pivot points are, if you cut on one side of a pivot point, the next cut, the compression and tension have, change completely and so you can't just cut the same way every time you have to look at every cut and make a decision on how you're going to cut it to you know stay safe and and you know potentially not get pinched but not get injured so uh, every cut takes some thought and that's that's what i try to impart to my students is you think about every action and, and don't be complacent which then begs the question, how did you get, why did, how or why did you get into training? Um, I, I guess, I guess the, the, the easy answer is I'm selfish and I want to learn. And so um, when Dwayne, I'd already been through, uh, I think probably eight courses, ARBCAN courses before I met Dwayne and I had, you know, great instructors John Ransom and Mark Cook and James was 
teaching with Mark Cook when I first met him in the in the climbing course. Um, but those guys all had a had a piece of um, had something to do with why I wanted to get into training and and uh, and learn from them, but also you know like most trainers, as long as you're teaching, you're learning, you take something from every class and it might not be a, a technique that you're going to change, but it might be just a way of explaining something that somebody gets it sooner. So my goal as a trainer is to, um, teach a concept using as few words as possible. No filler words, just here's a concept plain and simple and and clean concise and and that's my goal is to get better at that um but then also people learn differently so having different ways to explain things is, is also valuable so learning how to do that it's it's an always an ongoing process so absolutely i think i got i think that's what i'm drawn to training for the same reasons is i just love to learn stuff and for me yeah. <laughs> teaching people other things is a way to learn. Well, not only to, to learn and master what you're teaching, but then also to learn other things that are related, but you wouldn't ever pick yeah, up. Yeah. I love stuff like that. Uh, and, and they, and another, I guess, selfish, but not really as I love meeting people. So by default, you have somebody come to either a tree climbing course or a chainsaw course. They love being outside. They love working with their hands that means they probably have other common interests, whether it's camping or fishing, um, mountain biking, just being outside. So then I've, I've had built great relationships and have really good friends that have come out of training um, that I keep in contact with continually and, and they've become a big part of my life. So that's really cool too. Mm. Yep. yep the tribe of arboriculture which is i don't i don't know really know any other industries i don't know if it exists in other ones or not but i don't think it exists quite as strongly as it does in arboriculture as it as it does in a lot of industries that that tribal gathering you know even if it's something is i don't want to say off gear it's in you know like the the memorial for james which we referenced earlier certainly not a tree event but a gathering of tree people has a culture and and is very fulfilling in a whole way um, that you have to experience, you know, at the same time, Dwayne and I were up, you know, doing the Bruce Memorial fishing trip. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd forgotten how fulfilling that tribal get together can be on a personal level, you know? Um, yeah, you're right. We all have trees and tree work in common, but I think there's, it's all the other things we've learned um, from each other through the years that, that, that form that tribe. And, uh, and it's a pretty cool thing. I, I said, I don't know if it exists in other industries. I've never been anywhere else, but I hope so. But you never yeah, know. The, the closest I would compare is I, I also have a background coming from Woody. That is very much the same type of energy. And, and I mean, you, you get good people together with, you know, fundamental values and you just enjoy being around them. And for us, trees is just something that, gets us together with good people that's what rodeo is rodeo for me when i was involved in it and still like to visit with those people is it just it was a it was an avenue to get together with those people and spend time with those people and that's what you know james gathering bruce's gathering that's we just have the the tree connection but we just need a reason to get together with these people because we feel good when we do it Right. I think and it, it becomes, I know for me with the Bruce, it's a reminder, I think sometimes um, of, of that culture and that community, right? When you're not, when the tribe's not together, it's kind of easy to forget those links, not forget them, but not feel the value of them. And I think in that, you know, I'm certainly not Mr. Extrovert, Mr. Social. Um, I don't like meeting new people. I was, I don't need any more new friends. I got enough. Right. But I do love getting together with those that I have formed and, uh, and that, and that's, yeah, it's cool. And it's that and you forget that I think um you know the tree climbing competitions fulfilled that void or that need for me for many many years, um especially on the international level because you know on the on the chapter level those were good but I saw those people fairly often right you know at the chapter level when I went out to volunteering at the international or competing it was always you know those are people I might have only seen once a year um you know people like James and you know I might have seen Jane once or twice James once or twice a year on, on average but seeing that so when you do get in that situation where it's a little longer term it's it's very fulfilling very very worthwhile well you know it's so 
it, it's so much like the human forest, you know, it, 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 and you have those, there's the old growth or the, the, the longstanding trees that, that provide, you know, nurture and support, you know, to the trees below. And then, and, and the interactions of everything. And then the, the fungus that, that connects everyone and we feed each other, you know, and, and care for one another in a, you know, in an energetically, in an energetic way, but, you know, it's, to me, there's so many symbols of the human forest to all that, you know, and, and uh, you know, what I find interesting about the ITCC in particular, in the whole event, but particularly that event and all the tree climbing events, is the people that give their time to set that thing up. It is not a light commitment. You have to really be there and want to be there to do that. You don't just, you know, you have people that show up once in a while, but then there's always that old guard that that has a bit of a of a seasonality to it. like. But it's usually in the term of a decade or five to 10 year range where someone, you know, Tony, you're involved in my involvement with ITCC. Kyle, you're involved with, with competitions. Like you, you go and you give and you help mentor and build others. And there's, there's, there's that, there's something about that, that really, uh, you know, and, and Kyle, you know, I remember James talking about that and you spoke of it here now as well, but the selfishness of it, there's always that aspect, you know, you get, we get something out of it. It's why we like doing it. You know, you know, we're not, it's not for money because especially those events, we're not getting paid. And even, even instruction, like I've never met a teacher. That was someone that has a heart of a true instructor that, I mean, of course you got to get paid, but it's, it's not really about the money. You know, there's, it's about learning. It's about helping others and helping yourself. And, and I think that comes down to really having a, a heart that cares fundamentally about, others but also yourself because if you don't care about yourself you can't really you know the degree you care about yourself is the degree you're going to be able to care for others as well and uh you know that was and uh yeah anyways it, it's uh it's fascinating and uh, you know we've gone further into it uh, we we touch on it on all the the podcast cob but um you know you've elaborated more and we've gotten more into that concept here i think than in some of the others and it's been really uh, interesting to listen to. I've enjoyed listening to you guys as the last little chat you had here. Um, well, yeah, you know, we didn't talk a lot about. I I forgot a little bit about the your background in rodeo, and I, I don't think I've ever heard you draw a correlation to the come. You know, the the tribal feeling that you get in with tree people that you've had with your rodeo background. And that was something that was more associated with your uh, logging background as well, or was that somewhat always separated? Uh, no, that, it was always separated. I mean, my family uh, grew up on, on ranches and, and with that, you know, um, as a background. Um, so it was, it was easy for me to get into rodeo, but it was a direct correlation for me. Like it's one of the other of, events rodeo as, a, as an event is like a tree climbing comp where it's individual but everyone is there helping everyone else to beat them it, you're, you're competing against yourself you want to win but you're just as happy if you're if your buddy wins or your partner wins or if they do well and and you just want them to do well and and you know if, if they happen to have a better time or um get judged better than you, then, then you're happy for them. And, and that's the general, um, unwritten rule of it. So it's, um, it is very similar in those aspects. That's really insightful. I, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's very true. And a ton of volunteers huh. that have basically, they don't, right. they don't gain anything from it, you know, financially, but they just want to be around people with that energy and, and you know good good vibes right yeah i guess organizing and running a local rodeo probably takes a small army of volunteers that no one even ever hears their name oh, of. absolutely yeah yeah i never thought of that that's very very interesting you're right you're absolutely right huh. well 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 so um you you uh, I, I imagine your rodeo days I guess are over. Other than your some interaction, do you go and attend and watch and just reconnect? Yeah, uh, definitely go and attend and watch. And I did consider 
um, entering this spring. Um, I made a couple phone calls. And it didn't wow. work out, so I could say that I kind of tried, but either way, I was okay <laughs> with, it, with doing it or not doing it. But uh, you know, I haven't I haven't cracked out again as far as that goes. But I have thought about it. it it's something I my kids had never seen before, wow. and uh, and my right. son, my son, like I have a box. It's over on the side there. And, and it's full of pictures of me rodeoing and competing, and he routinely pulls it out and looks at the pictures and asks questions. So I think it would be really cool for them to see me compete, and and uh, and not for me, but for them to see. I, I think it's really important for kids to see active parents and and you know their their best right. models actually involved and in, and in doing stuff and competing, trying to you know it takes a certain amount of. Um, you got to play right. yourself. Do you, do you think you'll ever, you think they'll ever get into, like, what if they wanted to? Oh, they, there was a, a little britches in town this weekend. Yeah. In a heartbeat, they would be there. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. They, I mean, they and imagine they're climbing trees, too. Pardon me. And imagine they're climbing trees as well. Yeah. Uh, mostly dangling from trees, they hang in their harness and stuff. Not so, much, yeah. <laughs> not so much actively climbing and, and tending ropes and stuff, but they, right. they have a harness yeah. that they, yep, yeah, play around in. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, you know, I, I'm always fascinated at our. We we run these things, and and you know. You just never know where they're going to go because we don't have a, a specific. We don't. We don't send a bunch of questions out in advance and stuff like that. But uh, it, it, we get to this time just just past an hour point where it, it just seems to be a natural kind of segue. And um, um, you know, I know you got a busy thing. You're a busy man and and things to do. But we want to really thank you uh, for your time. You know the most valuable non-renewable resource we all have that that for sharing this with us and uh, um, you know it just just thank you for taking time to talk with us on tree actions today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me.